You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. Well, hello, Bracken. Hello, Kirk. Welcome to this interview. <laughs> Thank you. And hey, welcome. I'm, I'm very excited to have you as a guest today, Bracken. I am so excited to be interviewed by you. I noticed you didn't send any questions over ahead of time. I'm very nervous about what's going to happen. You know, my co-host likes to keep it conversational, sometimes too conversational. And so he prefers we don't send questions over in advance. So that's why you didn't receive any questions, mostly because of my overly talkative co-host. Yeah, well, I'll try to make him comfortable and just talk about myself as much as possible. I think you two will be a good fit. <laughs> That'd be a nice flowing conversation. Sounds like a dashing man. Uh-huh. What are we doing here, Bracken? Kirk, we're uh, we're taking a bit of our own medicine. We had a plan, you and I. I'm explaining this to you in order to break the third wall and talk directly to the audience. Yeah, let's do that. We had a plan to go through this entire coaches series, have six or seven coaches on, explain everything, and then at the end, give our version of answers to all of them so that... I mean, most people know our thing at this point, but we do have new listeners every week. And we've gotten a few questions recently about episodes that or topics we covered early on that just makes us realize, yeah, a lot of people haven't heard our early stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, they just joined us once we were famous. They, they don't know our our underground albums. Well, right. We wanted to talk about it at some point, but our backup plan was if we ever have a scheduling snafu, we can just pull this out and do this episode well what did we have today kirk we had 40 straight minutes of trying to get our guest connected and the audio working with no feedback and we found it too great a feat to overcome so here we are we were defeated by technology today no but technology cannot stop the connection between you and i nothing can not even a train that's pretty (laughs) impressive not even a train (laughs) I'm telling you what. So, uh, all right. Well, I mean, we could bullshit a little bit like we normally do if we would like, but, you know, you're full of secrets and we got to get to work kind of. So, I mean. (laughs) I'm a man who's full of secrets and you got to get to work. (laughs) You'll you'll find out why, folks. But do you want to jump into this or do you want to talk about yourself a little bit first? (laughs) Come on. You can't dangle something like that in front of me. Yeah, let's talk about me. No, let's get into this. And and you know what's going to happen is we're going to meander our way through these questions. And so let's leave some some room for meandering. That's a good idea. And, and we're probably just because we killed 40 minutes trying to get our guest uh, linked in. We might have a little shorter episode today due to my time crunch. Um, so if we make it 90 minutes... That'll be good. So if you're out there running with us in your year, you're going to have to cut your run short or you're going to have to go to some other uh, podcast to hold you over to get through your run, I guess. I just had a message pop up on Slack on my computer in front of me. It said on a scale of one through 10, how signed up for City Field are you this weekend? Who asked that? This is an athlete of mine who heard the episode that said, I'm not going to go, but I really want to. 
And he trusts me so little that he messaged me a day later and said, so one through 10, how signed up are you? (laughs) Just the amount of faith people don't have in me to stay away from a race, Kirk. They don't know me. You've earned that lack of faith. (laughs) They do know you. That's the problem. They don't know. You haven't hidden it very well either. So it doesn't take a rocket scientist. I'd I'd like to think I'm a forthcoming Mm -hmm. fellow. Sure you are. We'll leave that alone for the time being. Actually, let's, I want to address this. Not address this. I do you think can you come up with anything outside of City Field if I signed up for it or not? Outside of that, do you think there's anything that I've hidden intentionally from our audience? Do I have any hmm. or or have we been pretty darn forthcoming? Anything you've hidden. Do you know anything about me that the audience doesn't that you think I'm intentionally holding back? I think I know plenty about you that is so unrelated to this podcast <laughs> well, that it hasn't been shared. So okay. that's yeah, yes. Am I misleading with anything? Certainly not. You are all revealing. <laughs> you don't have to get into what I'm wearing right now. <laughs> Just some old ugly sweatshirt. No, you've been you've been forthcoming. You've you've been an open book, and and I, I can't think of one thing. We both have. Yeah. All right. Just sometimes people question if this is an act, what we do. I don't know who questions that. When I see people in person, they ask like, is this banter real? Or when you guys say stuff, is it real? And We've been doing this for 40 minutes as we waited for a guest to get on. That's why this <laughs> is so out of whack right now. I, I would say that if you heard our phone conversations, outside of you censoring yourself with profanity a little bit and me being a little more inappropriate with some of my comments, this is like 100% what we would normally talk about if no one was listening. Yeah, I do have a little bit of a sailor's mouth and I, I got to watch it a little bit on here. And I'm a bit more of a pervert than I am on here normally. But outside of that. A bit, a little bit is not, that isn't even close to accurate, by the way. It is. I have a middle school sense of humor at my core. But uh, an adult's knowledge, which is a problem. It's mostly right about. <laughs> well, well, I guess I'll pose one more thing. Um, <laughs> Good. Is... Is withholding of information not being forthcoming? Strategic withholding. Only if the topic is actually broached. Like if no one asks you and you don't tell it, I don't think that's withholding. Okay. But if someone asked me and I lied about it or divert. Or just cut that part out of the conversation with intent. Does this happen much? (laughs) It's going to happen with our intro today. Do I need to just be honest right now? No, you don't. No, not at all. Okay. No, okay. there's been no direct questions asked. So everybody's still in the dark, which I think is hilarious. Good. Yeah. All right. Well, good. If, if we must be vague, let's move on. All right. Good Good start today, I would say. Good start. Why don't I do this? Why don't... I mean, you can ask any question of me you want. I have this handy dandy sheet of questions. It's like a sticky mm-hmm. note. Um that I can just go down the list here. These are all questions and maybe a few that I haven't asked um, some of our guests just because we mostly run out of time. seems to be perpetually our issue. But uh, why don't I just fling to you first? And then if you feel like you want me to answer first, I'm happy to. But otherwise, I can just kind of guide this ship and, and we can go go about it that way. Now I'm getting all these test results coming in from my blood work this morning. I was perusing through those. Please be negative. Please be negative. (laughs) Not that type of test. Although I've had them. All right. (laughs) Shall we? We shall. Let's start with um, 
you know, and we've expressed some of our opinions talking to some of our previous guests. So like, you know, well, you might hear some things echoed, but that's okay. I think you can tolerate it, folks. Um, let's start with the three philosophy questions um, that I've okay. asked. And why don't we start with your favorite uh, topic in the entire world? Might as well start with it now because I don't know how long it's going to drag on. And, and that is your general <laughs> philosophy on shoes and, and what should be put on thine feet. Well, this may come as a surprise to people, but as much as I obsess over shoes and just love shoes and think that they are such an interesting topic and I love testing out every sting, single style of shoe out there, my philosophy is very, very simple on footwear. Okay. I think you have to choose the shoe that works well for your foot and for your stride. And that is it. I have seen way too much evidence on both sides of the argument. I have seen ultra runners run in minimal shoes and be injury-free their entire career and be super competitive and happy. And I've seen people who are super light, super efficient, like the picture of that rail-thin distance runner who does not even impact the ground, run in maximal shoes for everything and have a long, healthy career. And I've seen the opposite of both. I've seen I've seen people get injured off minimal shoes. I've seen people get injured off maximal shoes. I know people who the second they run in hokas, their lower back starts going. Like the way you run, the, your, the way your stride is, some people don't respond to maximal and some people don't respond to minimal. So I actually don't care about any of that. I care about the shoe that supports you on the final mile of your run or final kilometer of your run, the same way it supports you on the first mile. And maybe even that's the wrong statement. I want the shoe that supports your best stride on your last mile or kilometer. I actually don't care how it starts. And I and I mean that for every distance of run. So I have a million different styles of shoes. If I'm doing a recovery run, I choose the shoe that I'm going to feel good in when I'm almost done with my recovery run. And if I'm racing a mile versus a 10K versus a six-hour race, I choose the shoe that's going to support me in the final part of that run and that I can feel good and run my best stride in. And that's what I think people should choose for everything. The one that supports you at the end of your run. Far too often, we choose the shoe that looks sexy, looks flashy, or feels so fast when we put it on and do strides and start the run. And by the end of the run, our form has degraded and the shoe no longer supports the stride that we're using at that point. Do you think that's something that everybody can feel out? Like, or somebody who's not as in touch with their body as you can figure out? Or are we of the privileged kind in that regard? Well, I'm super privileged in that I've run for decades. I mean, I was making these mistakes still out of college. I tried transitioning to more minimal footwear out of college in my first couple of years of OCR because I realized trail racing and off-road truly technical running is so demanding on your feet that lower stack height is really going to be useful to not rolling your ankle yeah. and better ground feel. And I, my, I theorize that part of the reason I'm breaking down later in races is that I'm not used to running in this type of shoe and this type of support for this long at this level of exhaustion and depletion. And so I need to start running daily in less of a shoe so I can build up resistance to this, which is a logical thing to do. And I ran into issues immediately. Right. So, I mean, I was, I was 24 still experimenting, trying to figure out what even works. I didn't even have my philosophy of shoes down yet. I was just trying. So I think it's what everyone needs to try. I think you try out a shoe. 
and you see how that goes. And that shoe informs your next decision of your next shoe and your next one and your next one. I think there's a lot to be said about you put your foot in the shoe and say, Ooh, this feels right. That's the shoe you start with, but that is baseline test. Every single thing from there refines what works for you. Well, I think I've developed one philosophy. Okay. Pretty simple philosophy. And I guess the word malleable comes to mind, but versatile would work too. Like be malleable, malleable and be versatile in the sense that I'm a big fan of shoe rotation, meaning like even preemptively as injury prevention to wear different styles or models or brands of shoes to just prevent uh, overuse injuries. For example, I historically struggle with lower shin issues. But I find if I do a good job of rotating up my shoes, it's a slightly different uh, foot strike pattern with the ground and it stresses my tibia in just enough of a different way where I don't develop like a real big hot spot on my shin. Whereas if I run an even a great pair of shoes for me, if I run in that same one, I'm going to get the same tibia shin splint pop up in the same spot. And so rotation seems to be key for me. Um, I also think being able to pivot based on injury symptoms. I mm-hmm. believe that a shoe... You can actually pivot being like, you know what? My inside ball of my foot is hurting. My shoes are a little tight. I do like my Hoka Clifton's, but they are a little tight in the forefoot. Maybe pivoting once in a while to a shoe that just gives you a little more room up front. Like listening to your body and then adapting on those fronts sometimes can be uh, smart instead of just sort of like walking into the same wall. So I actually believe in having like a rotation and then options, which is what I do. And you can sort of guide your decision based off of potential niggles and nagles symptoms. Um, and if you can navigate that properly, it can actually maybe help stave off like a real bad, got to take time off type of injury. So I would say being versatile and malleable with your shoe choices. And actually, if you're feeling great, then of course, stick with what works. But oftentimes, sometimes a little correction there can can go a long ways. So I try not to get stuck on one is the point being like i got a bunch of shoes for a reason and I tend to use them. So that would be my general philosophy. Like somebody says, pick the shoe that works best for you. And I agree with that, but that's like the lucky few who's like, there's my shoe. I've never been injured. It always works. Like that's talking to such a small percentage of the crowd. And so mine is like, have lots of options, have lots of choices, let your body decide what maybe is a smart choice to make next based on, you know, any overuse symptoms you're having, which most of us have pop up from time to time as an endurance athlete. So that's, my philosophy on shoes. I agree. Lisa's going through this right now. She keeps getting shin pain and it's like, you got to rotate shoes. Well, first we just bought a second pair of the same shoe and she alternates each day. And there's, there's science behind that that show or research. I don't know if you call that science, but research that shows the compression rate of foam. It doesn't always decompress to its full normal rate in 24 hours. Mm-hmm. Giving your shoes to 48 hours in between runs is better for the decompression of the foam. And if you do it running them every single day, they just compress faster and they never reset uh, where they were. So you just get less life out of your shoes. Even if the bottoms don't look like they're trashed and the uppers aren't ripped, your foam is just more compressed than it should be if you're rotating shoes. So yeah, I I agree. I, I looked at people like Hobie Call who ran in one shoe for everything. And I always thought, man, it's so simple. He has one pair of shorts and one shoe and he never has to make a decision. He just rolls out of bed, puts them on and goes and it's life simple for him. But he's the exception to the rule. If you can do that, do it. But the rest of us have to be creative. Yep. 
glad we, we agree, I think, on most of these things. But we'll dive into different we'll spider web a little bit. Um, all right. Philosophy on treadmill running and its positive or negative implications on your race fitness. I mean, this is kind of the, my same answer as shoes. I've seen far too many people do well with both options and get injured by both to discount anyone's opinion on this. But I do know that it may be the single greatest running tool for running outside of being outside. Like if you can't run outside, it's the next best option. And in some cases, it's a better option. Mm -hmm. You can run uphill indefinitely on a treadmill. You cannot do that outdoors. Even if you can, like in Colorado, at one point, I lived in a place where I could run uphill for three hours without having to run downhill. Well, but what do you do then? You come back down. You got to get down. Someone either has to drive three hours on the long winding pass around to get you, or you have to run three hours or an hour and a half downhill. So it's just a better option for that. You can control precise speeds and you can really work on heart rate because you don't have any other factors in there. So I think it really, really matters for a lot of people, especially people like us. If you live in cold areas with snow and ice, and if you live in a place with no mountains and you want to be able to do speed work in the winter, or you want to be able to do mountain work, that's, it's an absolute must. But I'm a big proponent of balancing the equation. I say that far too many times, but I believe it, that you have to balance the equation. And one of the parts of the equation for racing well is handling terrain. And so you must have actual resistance to impact days and skill days built in there, minimum one time a week of getting the opposite thing in. Mm -hmm. And so that means getting outside once, ideally two or three times a week. But I think you could do 90% of your training on the treadmill, but ideally you do no more than probably 75 or 80%. Well, I believe the treadmill works. And if I had to choose, if somebody was like, gave me the ultimatum. They were like, you have to do 75% of your work on the treadmill and 25% outside, or you had to do all of your work outside. So you have two options, treadmill dominant, but a quarter of the time you could get outside or all outside, no other options. Given where I live, I would pick the 75% treadmill option every single time. Because first of all, climbing infinitely is super important in this sport. Mm. My 25% of the time, I can get outside and get eccentric load on my local ski hill. Second, when you're doing all that uphill work, you take minimal damage. Yes, you fatigue your body, but you take minimal impact damage, which means like you can kind of get back to training a little faster. I've been doing these incline workouts every Wednesday lately. And as you know, my fitness is about as good as it's ever been. I feel like it's helping me develop a powerful stride. I feel like it's not, it's making me efficient. It's allowing me to get my heart rate higher then if I went out and did a flat tempo, I go do an incline tempo and somehow, you know, a, a gravity, you can't fake it. And so it just makes you work harder. It gets you to another level of fitness that incline can. And I'm really honing on the incline component of the treadmill. That's mm -hmm. the big piece here, obviously. Um, and then what's happening is because there's so little damage done, I might be able to go pop another hard one two days later because I haven't had to go back downhill. And so I think for building fitness without like, you know, if I go do a three hour day on the ski hill up and down, probably three, four days before I can really do it, like a quality workout worth anything. And that's a good thing. We want to create that sort of damage. Well, on my little hypothetical scenario, I still could. And so I just think that it, it does a lot of good for your metabolic aerobic anaerobic system 
with creating like a less injury or over fatigued environment. And I just think there's a lot of power in that. Is getting on real terrain better most of the time? Absolutely. But like, I think they're, we pick on them too much. Mm -hmm. If they're used right, they're so damn valuable. And so that's how I feel about treadmills. I actually think I agree with that. If I were training for pure enjoyment, I'd be outside 100%. Absolutely. But 75% inside, 25% outside might just make you a fitter athlete because you would be forced to be analytical about everything you did. You wouldn't waste a single run. Every outside run would have a strict purpose and it's too easy to get caught in just enjoyment or doing what we are good at or like doing outside rather than following the exact purpose of the run. We're on a treadmill. You have to forcibly push the button to raise the terrain and the pace and lower it. And it just leads to more analytical workouts and science-based workouts and less just like getting caught in between. Like I'm running easy. I'm setting an easy pace. I'm watching my heart rate rather than putting a podcast on or zoning out, getting lost in my thoughts, looking down and I'm running 610 pace instead of 710 pace. You know, you can't zone out and accidentally accelerate on the treadmill. So it would keep you more to keeping your days specifically dialed in. I think it'd be closer to creating an athlete in a lab than just like give a good training plan and then hope they follow it. So I do agree with you on that. I think treadmills get get downtrodden, so to speak. But that being said, long-term happiness, I got to be outside. Yeah, I was null and void on the happiness factor. Yeah. Like I wasn't... Uh, Talking, and of course, I wouldn't want to be stuck on the treadmill 75% of the time. I'm talking like I'm proving a point on how much I believe that it can yes. help you by showing an extreme case. But, um, you know, twice a week with purpose, even if you have access to mountains, even if you have access uh, to that side of the terrain, I would say like, yeah, especially if you're if you play the injury game and especially if you play the overly fatigue game or the I run at night or in unsafe circumstances game, yeah. um, you're not selling yourself short is what I'm saying. I don't think so. Big, big time and place. And that time and place is pretty much every week in my opinion. I, I have this conversation with myself in my brain, in my head a lot. <clears throat> if blank happened, how would I react to that? And oftentimes that blank is like, what if I lost all access to this? Or what if we just like, if you were, you hear about athletes getting trapped in their hotel, you know, during COVID or athletes getting trapped in an Airbnb. And I thought if I had a treadmill and I was trapped, let's say for three months, I seriously think I'd come back in better shape than if I just had three months at home. Mm. Because you'd be so specific about how you used your tools because you'd have nothing else to distract you. You might even just be in better shape off just treadmill, except for downhill work. The, The only thing though, that is funny about this is that where I don't think you should use the treadmill is everybody's like, I can't pace and I need the treadmill to help mm-hmm. me. So I'm going to go too hot. My, so I'm going to, you know, I'm going to run my intervals at 630 pace. And I'm going to set the treadmill to it. But then they get out on real terrain and they're a fucking shit show. Like, I actually yeah. don't think pace work intervals on the treadmill for the average athlete who's not very in touch in their body. Like my 25% on real terrain would either be at the ski hill and get an eccentric load or going out and running. Like even we talk like one, two, three intervals, a minute on, minute off, two minutes on. So easy to plug the number on the treadmill, but then you learn nothing about how to gauge your own effort. And so I actually, it serves a purpose, but like for most people, I'd be like, that'd be the wrong application. It'd be like, yeah. for that one, get outside. And so you can learn your body. 
because we don't race on a treadmill. We race outside. So um, although I agree with you, like being calculated, like for us, I think we can get away with it because we know our bodies well. But when I see athlete data come in, I'm like, you're all over the place outside. Like that athlete needs to stay outside and figure it out. So I don't know. That's just a little caveat I wanted to throw in there. Zach Miller essentially did your proposal there. He worked on a a treadmill. I mean, he didn't work on a treadmill. He worked on a cruise ship while preparing for his first ultra. And he did all of his running on the treadmill or around the deck of the cruise ship. And whenever they made port, he'd go in and get a multi-hour day in on the best terrain he could find and then come back out. So he was doing 90% of his runs on the treadmill. And he went out and set the JFK 50-mile course record at the time. Yeah. I mean, it's it's doable. And he had to be purposeful. And then he got big time on his feet, eccentric loading days when he could get to terrain. But how does his body work? It takes, if you hit it with a big stimulus once every 10 to 20 days, you'd be surprised how long it holds on to it. We can move on from that, but um, you all know that we shoved that down your throat, I think, in the past. <laughs> um, last philosophy question. What is your philosophy on strength training for runners, Bragan? My philosophy on this is constantly changing, Kirk. And, and the hard thing is that a runner is such an amorphous blob, <laughs> not an individual runner, but the term runner in general. It just looks so different across the spectrum because anyone who runs is a runner. And so like, what's your background coming into it? I believe that all runners should do some sort of heavy load lifting. What that looks like is different for everyone because of the things we've talked about here, running being uh, catabolic versus lifting being, um, oh my goodness, I can't even think of the term anabolic. (laughs) Balancing out the equation in terms of the chemicals produced by your body, hormone production, breaking down your body versus giving it the good juice to, to build itself back up. And I think for pure force production, runners need to get under some heavy loads. But I don't think that every runner at every stage of their career needs to be doing three by fives. I think that a lot of runners can get by with functional work, with circuit work. I think that a lot of runners would benefit more from doing single leg work and working out their imbalances. I like what Matt Fitzgerald said. The great thing about strength training is that anything is better than nothing. Couldn't agree more. And so finding out what someone's done first and easing them into it depending on what they're, again, balancing the equation, what is their current weakness? You take a guy who's a massive powerhouse, he probably doesn't need to be under a heavy load more than the minimum viable dose. Like what could you get away with? The least amount you can get away with, with the maximum benefit before you lose any real return on your investment. That's what I like to focus on for power output. And then the rest, I I think that, you know, for some runners, if you deadlifted and squatted once a week, the rest should be pull-ups and lunging, <laughs> Bulgarian split squat. I think you can get away with a lot of different styles. So I don't really have a philosophy of runners must blink other than they must be underneath a heavy load at least once every 20 days, ideally more, but and they must work out the imbalances with single-sided work. But outside of that, I th- I've seen, again, I've seen... T- too many people like VJ do high, more higher intensity circuit work. And I've seen people like you who can do just a lot of real power work and Hunter who does a mix of everything. And myself who's raced 
almost equally well off several different styles of strength training. So it's the one that gives you the most benefit without impacting your ability to run on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And I know that's a bit of a non-answer, but it's, it changes throughout a season and it changes throughout an athlete's career. Well, I'll give you a very straightforward answer a non cloudy, and then I'll give you a very blurry one. Just like, okay. You kind of did. Um, Strength training is an absolute must, and it's an absolute must not for strength gains at all. It's mostly an absolute must for hormone production and recovery purposes. What we do is so catabolic, as you said, Bracken. We break the body down, break the body down all this time on feet that we need to offset that with anabolic work. If we don't, our hormones get out of whack. Our testosterone plummets. It can mess with our um, just our basal metabolic rate, our thyroid and even adrenal glands sometimes, cortisol levels, all of that stuff, estrogen if you're a woman, but mostly testosterone still. If we're not putting our body under heavy strain, and all we're doing is breaking it down, breaking it down, breaking it down, and never rebuilding, you're actually inhibiting your overall potential to recover. And also just like how well your body functions as general. We need balance, right? And so we need to offset all of that catabolic work with anabolic strength work. Does it really matter what you're doing for the most uh, for the most neurological hormonal benefit? That means putting your body under heavy load. That will induce the biggest hormone production. And hormones are like what drive our whole entire body, the metabolic processes and the hormonal regulation. That's why thyroid, you know, adrenal glands, our testosterone, our estrogen are so damn important to how we feel every single day. So on that um, front alone, the answer is yes. What kind? Well, a heavy load is good, but um, I do believe in periodizing your strength work, meaning base phase is synonymous with heavy load and maybe parallel stance movements, and even some of them not very functional. Like if you want to bench press in the off season, please do. Why? Because of what I just talked about, hormonal regulation, uh, especially, and just nervous system stimulation. So like, is it super race specific? No. But is it good for your overall metabolism? Yes. So starting with big, heavy movements. And then as the season goes on, transitioning to more finite single leg and sometimes lighter movements makes a lot of sense. Um, so I don't believe in one type. I will say that, um, for the athlete who is just too big to run fast. And if it's mostly muscle, like you need to just go to exactly what Bracken talked about with like, let's go single movements. Let's go things, maybe even higher rep, uh, metabolic work. Like I'm currently doing, which is like, you see me on Strava and it just says indoor bike for 70 minutes. Well, there's a lot going on in that 70 minutes that you don't know about, including, you know, two minutes on the bike, three minutes strength circuit, two minutes on the bike, three minutes strength circuit. And what's happening? I'm losing weight and I'm running faster than ever. So am I doing a five by five program right now that I'm even prescribing to a lot of our running public athletes? No, but I'm also in a different place than they are. So just knowing where you're at with your strength and then tailoring your program accordingly to get you the best results come race season is important. That's my blurry answer. But my clear answer is yes, no matter what it is due to hormonal, mostly hormonal production, but like nervous system, metabolic simulation, basal metabolic rate, and then overall just offsetting your catabolic nature of all the endurance uh, training you're doing. Yeah. Was that clear? Or was that unclear? I don't know now. No, it was good. It's what I would like to be able to say, I suppose. <laughs> what do you mean? I, I feel like you were more clear than I was. Maybe. I, I think that posture and rounding out imbalances is very overlooked in endurance athletes. You look at cyclists and then to some extent runners and we curl forward over time. That just like that cervical rounding 
it just in thoracic rounding. It's just not a, it's not a healthy result of exercise. And so Matt Fitzgerald's an expert, but he said one thing that I would have argued if we were on an arguing podcast, eh, maybe more than one, who knows? But he said, I just would, you should never bench press as a runner, you know, or as a cyclist or as a swimmer. But he I just said it, he just said it would not help your running. And I think it would because I'm a, I think anything that fights the process of shoulders rounding and hunching forward helps your running and helps your cycling and, and benching, you know, if you're doing it, the true technical bench way, you're expanding your chest way up, your lower backs coming way off the bench and that really unnatural looking style that good bench mm-hmm. pressers use where an average person walks in the gym and goes, look at that fool. They're going to destroy their back. Well, in reality, they're using their back in proper supported alignment. It's an unnatural looking motion, but it fights that curling process that cyclists and runners put themselves through constantly. Yeah. And then it allows for a greater, better posture, but greater expansion of your diaphragm once you're running upright. So I actually think it can I like lat pull downs. I like pull ups. I like push ups. I like anything that makes you expand your chest and pull your shoulders back. I agree. And then you can just you can tap onto anything. Well, hormonal stimulation. Yep. And there you you have an argument for any single movement, especially a big movement like a bench press. It's like I, I don't care if you need to do that to get your rocks off, so you feel good about yourself on the beach with your shirt off. It's still you could argue as long as you're not toppling over with muscle, like go nuts. That's what I think. Yeah. Um, okay, cool. All right. Um, I'm going to hop all over. I'm going to like close my eyes and pick one here on my little list. Okay. Okay. Like that. How many, how many days per week should a runner aspire to run? Let's talk. Let's like just leave. I'm sure we, we could dive down. Well, if you're injured, we could go down that train. Let's say screw that train. Okay. We're just talking. How many days are optimal for a person to run each week? And how many days are optimal for a person to strength train each week? Both of those. All right. I'm going to give you the non-answer first, and then I'm going to give you an actual answer. The non-answer is as many days as you can handle with no drawbacks, with no negative side effects. Mm -hmm. And that's different for everybody at every stage of their running. It might be one or two or three early on. But my real answer is you start progressing as an athlete, in my opinion. if you're, we're, We're saying they're healthy, right? We're saying they can handle it. The moment you start running more days than you're not running. So at four, there's a tipping point. Mm-hmm. Running four, to me, in my history of watching athletes, four is significantly better than three. Yep. And five significantly better than four. And then it starts to tail off. Agreed. Now you'll get arguments from high-end coaches and low-end coaches and middle-end coaches. <laughs> I think five is kind of like the... What I would say that that sweet spot where you're going to get the vast majority of the benefits without a lot of the associated drawbacks and four is okay as well. And, and there may be even some benefits to running only four or five times a week, kind of with the same argument as the treadmill, which is when you have less to work with, you have to be more intentional about what you do rather than getting caught in. Well, I'm, you're not going to go out for just a gray zone run when you only run three or four days a week. Every run is going to have purpose. And that's my biggest belief is that every run must have a purpose. So five, if I can get an athlete to five days a week, I'm happy. 
Yeah, because then you can get some actual time on feet done. You have enough time for two good quality days and three good aerobic building days. And you have enough time away that you're always recovering. Six, seven. I mean, I've I've run as much as 10 or 11 times a week for months at a time in my career. And I felt like a monster, but I was always on the verge. Mm -hmm. I was always teetering on the edge of something. So I can't say that I'm significantly better at 11 runs a week than I was at five. If my five had purpose, I was better on 11, but I was much more fragile. So four to five is the number. I'm convinced. Okay. Well, we're taking fragile on the verge injury out of the equation. The answer is six. In my opinion, a lot of people would argue seven, uh, especially top end. Are we taking injury out of the equation? That's what I said. Yeah. I'm going to say nine or 10. I said, how many days? There's only seven days. In a- okay. I'm going to say, I'm going to go advance that past that. I'm going to say run six days a week and double three times. Okay. Can't argue with that at all. I, I believe my philosophy is I believe we do need one full day of just like, just give your body like the chance to reset, recalibrate, recover, especially if you're in a good training cycle. Um, my career, the fastest I've been in my life would be college. I was one who took eight Sunday off. Most of the guys ran seven days a week. Um, I did not. And I saw more success than a lot of those guys and improved quicker or as quickly as those guys, um, running six days a week, sometimes doubles in there. Yep. But, um, six days a week for sure. If your body can handle it. Uh, and I agree with you as well about the doubles. If you can, we're taking injury off the table. I agree. It'd be six days a week, two or three doubles, roughly 70 plus miles and a Sunday or whatever day, Monday, completely off to just Forget about training for one day. It's, that's powerful long-term. That's what I'd say. You, you joggled my memory a little bit here. So I'm going to say two things. Mm-hmm. First is that we have one of the biggest fallacies in sport, but especially in training, is that when the calendar page turns, our body resets. Like I just got to get through to Sunday, get my long run in, and now we start back over. And on Monday, I'll kick back up. Like your body doesn't understand calendars. It understands stress recovery adaptation cycles. That's it. All it knows is stress. And so why would we why would we apply our human constructs to biological processes? Processes. Prosci, Kirk. Biological prosci. We've landed on prosci before. It's definitely prosci. Yeah. Prosci. So no, Sunday doesn't trigger a recovery response. <laughs> Taking a recovery day on Sunday triggers a recovery response. If you are on the verge by Sunday, just holding on, I got to get to my 40 miles and then I can start again tomorrow. That's not a thing. Mm-hmm. So let's let's all agree on that. And I would say then if we're doing perfect world, I think I would put everyone on somewhere between a nine and an 11 day schedule. Perfect world. You don't have jobs. You don't have calendars. You don't have priorities. I would probably do eight to nine days on one day fully off. And I would double three to four times throughout that. And would that nine or 10 days on end with like a big, long damaging effort. And that's why you've earned your day off. Or would there be one or two in those 10 days? On Re- Regardless, regardless of how big or small they were, I would still, even world-class athletes make them take a day away from it. They could still cross train on that day, but they are not allowed to run more than eight to nine days in a row. I disagree because if you're a deer hunter, you need at least one day off over the weekend to be out in the woods all day bracken. That's right. I'm taking all the cards <laughs> off the table. If I could recreate the world, we'd have nine day weeks. And everyone would get the fourth and ninth day off. 
why don't you run for president and make that your big thing, like your big, your big push. Like I am changing the calendar and just see who goes with it. There'd be a time where that would be a ridiculous statement. It's not now. That wouldn't be the most ridiculous platform of the recent years. Building a wall might be. All right. Should we move on? Yeah. I've said everything I want to say about, about uh, days per week, I think. All right. Uh, okay. Let's see. What else do we got here? Kind of leads into the volume question. You just want to dive into that one right now? Might as well, unless you have a better option. They're all good options, Brack, and I wrote these. <laughs> Great option. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Let's uh, dive down that rabbit hole, which is probably we could make an entire week's worth of episodes on the volume versus speed query. Mm-hmm. Um, volume versus speed. I will propose the same thing that I proposed to these last coaches to you because let's just keep it similar and then we yeah. can free flow. But uh, here's the stipulation. You can run 20 miles per week. You can do all the quality work your heart desires, but you're capped at 20 miles per week. The alternative is running as many miles as you would like each week, unlimited till you're blue in the face, but you are capped below lactate threshold. You can never... Uh, let's say give you a three, three beat per minute buffer below lactate threshold or less, um, in training. You have one or one or the other, and your race distance is anywhere from the 5k to the half marathon, whether it's trail road or OCR. What are you picking and why? Volume every time. 20 miles per week is the, is the deal breaker. It's actually not the heart rate that gives me any pause on that. It's 20. If you would said 30 or 35, that would be a very difficult decision for me to make. But if I look at what 20 means, if one of them's a long run, what do I have left? Mm-hmm. How much skill work? If I can do all the speed work I want in the world, if I want to get three in in a week, which is probably what you would do if you could only run 20 miles and do all the speed you wanted and all your aerobic elsewhere, that's only seven miles per day of, of work, mm-hmm. which you could argue you could get good amounts of work in on seven miles per day, but what if you do a long run? Let's say a short long run of 10. I only have 10 miles left to do quality work. It's just, it's not enough for me. If I wanted to do a 15 mile long run, let's say you're doing marathon, 15 or 20 mile long run, you don't have anything left. <laughs> so it's just not enough mileage to be worth the allure of all the speed in the world. So mm-hmm. I'm taking lactate threshold just below all the volume in the world on that because it's been proven you can race pretty darn well off that. Well, and for those who haven't listened to past episodes, we're also taking cross training off the table. So there's no filler work in this scenario. Now I will say this answer is more painful for me. You and everybody else have had immediately have gone right to volume. And I don't, I don't, I don't default to that as quickly, mostly because I've spent many years running low volume and if I really, if there was a gun to my head and I slid a half marathon race, do I think I could make it work on 20 miles per week and get 95% of the way there? My answer is yes, with confidence. That might be two, three or four mile runs and then one big smack of an effort where I'm hitting 12 miles worth of quality work on a Saturday. Mm-hmm. However, and it feels painful for me to say this, I still choose volume. Yeah. Because 20 is just not quite enough. And you start doing the math of your time on feet. And um, lately, with this fitness I'm developing, I've been working at threshold most of the time. Mm -hmm. And I'm developed, I mean, I'm working above threshold. So I I would be breaking the rules. 
but a lot of it isn't. And my fitness is progressing. So based on that, would I flirt a hell of a lot with my lactate threshold line in this situation? Yep. Would I be like my lactate threshold is roughly 173 beats a minute. Okay. Uh, 169 to 173. So let's say I cap myself at 169. Do I think I get a lot of work done in there? Oh, I'd go out and run 12 mile tempos at 167 to 169 if I had to, and I'd be yeah. fit as shit. So point being is the volume wins, uh, even with that governor. And I'd fudge the system. I'd do some cruise intervals downhill. Sure. So I could, so I could run 440 pace with a 155 heart rate. Like I'd, I'd get creative, but again, that's the kind of thing that the more stipulations and restrictions you have, the more it forces adaptation out of you to get creative. Yeah. All right. And then we add the asterisks, asterisks, asterisk, asterisk. asterisk. I don't know why it's hard for me to say. We had the asterisk of uh, same scenario, except with the 20 miles per week, you are allowed to cross train and supplement with aerobic conditioning to your heart's desire. Which one do you pick? I'm still going to stick with my original camp. However, I think there is a scenario to do this. I think if you would do long workouts, a 10 to 15 mile day, let's say you do a 15 mile day one week, and then the next day you do a nine to 10 mile day. So the one week you do 15 one day and you do five miles worth of speed work and you maximize that work. And then the next week you do 10 miles one day and then you get like a six mile tempo another day and you get four miles of speed work another day. Like you could get 20 miles in, but you would have to really be taking your cross training seriously. So at that point it would come down to the athlete type themselves. Mm-hmm. For me personally, I would still go with the volume approach because my body responds better to racing when I'm training running. Mm. Whereas someone like you responds pretty darn well to running with pointed workouts, but getting a lot of volume in. There are some people who are just a lot of triathletes are monsters off a of big bike and swim volume and specific run workouts. So I could be argued either way on this one. And I would probably, if you gave me all the athletes on my roster, I might split it 50, 50. But for me personally, I'm, I'm going to go with my bias, which is towards, I respond to running when I'm preparing for a running race. Yep. If I were training for happiness, I take the other one. I'd be running three times a week and I'd be doing a lot of cool cardio on the other days and that's it. Yeah. And, and it's funny. I'm, I'm equal, now I'm feeling equally as split, but I, I would, you know, maybe it's because it's what I know, but I would pick the cross training combo with the 20 miles of whatever I'd like. And what I would do is if I was really restricted to 20, it would look like something like I would be on the bike for an hour. I'd immediately hop off and do a four mile recovery run and get in 90 minutes of aerobic conditioning. Then I'd have a cross training day. Then I'd go back and I would do probably like an assault bike run Metcon where I'm only running four miles worth of work, but mm-hmm. my heart rate is up high as shit. And that's considered a, a quality day, most likely com- uh, combined with like OCR work. Just make it a big metabolic cluster mash of hate my life heart rate. And then I would still have like 12 miles left over for a long run. And you know what, if I'm at the ski hill and that might take me two and a half hours and that's enough. So like if you jig the system, right. Um, no problem all day. I would take the 20 miles done, right. Calculated play a little game of Tetris with the pieces you need to, to make a stew. And that'd be my answer. I, I can't argue with any of that, Kirk. I really can't. If you had even given me five more, 25 miles, I might have switched camps. <laughs> it's that five miles, huh? 20 is just like, you'd have to get it all right. Yep. But if you change the question, 
to a different style of competition, maybe triathlon, maybe DECA, stadiums, high rocks, I'd be in that first camp with you. Yeah. But when it's a primary running event, I respond to running. This is a question I have not asked any of our coaches. Um, uh, <laughs> well, I think it's a dumb question kind of, but whatever. <laughs> Ooh. I, I wrote it down and I was like, ah, it's not worth asking. When I saved it for about. you. I don't waste my <laughs> dumb questions on you. <laughs> Us, Bracken. We're, we're Us. Together on this. Um, what are some like, like if you just had to throw a, some shit at the wall, like new runner, this is very general, new runner recommendations. Like, and it can be like, these are pitfalls that a new runner might fall into. Or like, I'm just going to like, I don't know you. I know you just started running this last few months or this last year. Here are my recommendations. See, see why I didn't ask that question. It's a little like, man, I actually kind of like it. All right. Maybe I'm dumb. (laughs) (laughs) It takes one to know I'm bragging. Yeah. I've been a new runner several times in my life. I've had some extensive stays away from running like every single all summer long in high school and for Mm. the first couple of years of college. So I felt that new runner. First thing is having a mileage goal for each day or each week in mind to start with rather than going off what your body feels. I think that's a big issue because we end up running. Wait, you're saying to or to not have mileage goals? I think the mistake is that they have one. I'm starting up. I'm going to run three miles every day until blank. I don't, I don't like that. I think one of the worst things a new runner can do is practice bad form and practice hating running. And when you're new to running, you have no staying power with your form. I think you should run it every day as long as you can hold your good, casual, relaxed form. And the moment you start to lose that, I would stop. I would actually be a proponent of some aerobic interval work, but I, you know, to, to ensure that you don't ever run except for when you're running well. That's something I agree with Rich Diaz on. You got to run well from the beginning. It's so much harder to unlearn a habit than it is to learn one in the first place. So I think that's what I would start with. Everyone would be time-based. That's what they would track. And there wouldn't be much of a goal for the day for the first several weeks other than to run well. I have a four-word answer. Okay. Stay in your lane. Stay in your lane. Stay in your lane. When you begin to dive into the endurance world and running and you start to realize, like, I like this, you know, and you get into it, you start looking to those who have been doing it for a while and you look to those who know more than you and you start to idolize people like Bracken. Uh, <laughs> or who was like, I tried to You say couldn't even get that out. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh. you, you idolize people like anybody else. And you... you I'm just being this way on purpose. Okay. So, and, and you start to compare like what they're doing and you aspire to be like that or a version of that, which is totally understandable. It's also totally unreasonable. And so what happens is you tend to rush the process or think I need to do X amount to be a best version of myself. And it leads you injured almost every, like nine out of 10 times. And so stay in your lane, meaning like don't compare, which is easy to do and easy for me to say, I'm super hard to do in the moment, but don't compare, stay in your lane. Um, and there's no rush. And all that comes back to like staying in your, in your lane. Most of the best runners, if you see, by the way, like most of the best successful runners in their like adult career at their prime had like a smart high school coach who held them back. 
and their college coach didn't push everything down their throat and volume at the expense of their health. And they got to their mid twenties and thirties healthy because they had really good people helping them along the way. Not everybody, but for the most part. And now over a decade of staying in their own lane, they've built into this uh, cyborg that can handle what they can, but you didn't see them at 15, 17, when they're in the beginning of their running career, even though you're 40, 50, 60 at the beginning of yours, the baby steps that they took initially. And so you just can't compare your day to day with somebody else's highlight reel. And so it's like, stay in your lane. That's my best advice. I like that. If you looked at any other field, I don't know if running is really a field. There is a professional field to it. But if you look at any other skill you're trying to learn, let's say a guitar, piano, art, coding, Mm -hmm. another language, you don't jump into the sexy work first. You have to learn the core concepts, the definitions, and the simplest, most basic movements. You don't come in and be like, all right, we're going to start on the piano today. Let's let's get into a little bit of Bach just so you can see what it feels like. We'll do some hard days. We're playing, we're playing some Beethoven early, but then we're going to get down and we're going to work some simple hand movements on some other right. days. No, you would work on bare minimum finger movements from day one. And that's how running has to be. And you made a great point on our weight loss episode, which is save some easy stuff for later like some guaranteed things to work until you need something to work. Like why would we start in doing the the needle movers immediately when anything is going to move the needle? Like save some of those things, reward yourself later. Don't buy a super shoe and start doing VO2 max work early. Get out there and just run casually. And when you start to plateau off that, add in some threshold work in the long run. And then add in interval work and then reset and do the whole process again. You know, it's you, you, you have to move through the process in any other venture in life. Now, if you're a savant, you move through it quicker and the same thing can happen with running, but everyone has to start by identifying how to do it correctly before doing it faster. You can't play a fast piece on the piano until you can play a slow piece perfectly. And that's how running is. And that's the point that's missed because you can fake running fast when you're not good at it, unlike coding or piano or art. But you get to the same place eventually, which is frustrated and not mastering anything. You bring up a damn good point, which I'm glad you did. And that is like a new runner is going to start to adapt and progress to like such little stimulation Mm -hmm. that like you should really kind of see out a current excuse me, training pattern until you feel like you have actually plateaued. Um, Because just the basics, like going out and running every day in that gray zone three that we say you should stay away from. I don't hate a new runner starting there for a little while because it's going to induce change. Is it sustainable? No, but it's going to move the needle for you nonetheless. So Mm -hmm. I like that, like continue, you know, don't aspire to overdo your volume or your runs. Uh, unless you're truly plateaued. And also um, you, the new runners got to know like running isn't linear. Like you're going to have a good run for like, and then you're going to best your new four mile route next week. And you're going to best it your next week. And then you're just going to be tired one day and it's going to be two minutes slower. And you're going to be like, I'm getting worse. This is stupid. And everybody thinks that when they first start running, like how am I getting worse? Like running in progression is not linear and days are up and down. So like, don't live and die by every day. 
you have a good run. Guess what? You're not a stud yet. You have a bad run. Guess what? You're not a loser yet either. Like you just need to, you need to even out that, that bar graph, smooth it out, so to speak, because progression is not linear. And so all my new runners start to like really dissect their progression. And when they have a bad run, they think that they're getting worse and they're a loser. And it's just not true. It's just a day. We have days. Yeah. That's it. That's it. Okay. I like the question, Kirk. Don't, don't, right. don't sell yourself short. You're great. Oh, start. Oh, is that it? I mean, I give me, give me some time. I'll come up with something else. <laughs> and then let's just do, this is like the toughest group to talk at, to be honest. And that would be, what are your recommendations for the runner who's been doing it forever? The, the advanced runner who has decades of experience, the things that you see where you'd be like, you know what, these are actually my recommendations for you, Mr. Know-it-all. You got me? I'm in a good spot right now where I had to go through that, right? Mm-hmm. And I and so I feel like this is fresh on my mind. And that is the longer we do something, the more we forget about what it took to get there in the first place. The longer you've been doing something great, the more you forget the fundamentals, unless you're an exceptional mind. Like some people are geared towards being like checking every box every single day. But after a while, we get lulled into routine and we start to develop our own pattern, which is good sometimes, but we forget the little people that got us there. Right. And I think it's worth sometimes going back through and explain your training as if you're explaining it to an outsider. Like pretend you had to get on a consult call with one of us. And I said, hey, give me a breakdown of the trajectory of your last five years of training. Your last five seasons, break them down. Tell me how you progressed through them. And just talk to yourself in the mirror, look down and say it out loud. And you're going to start realizing that despite your best efforts, you have some holes in your chain. You have some breakdowns. There's some, there's some lack of progression certain places, or there's you've gotten some patterns that don't really have a good explanation other than what you were feeling emotionally at the time. And if you can't explain every single piece of it logically, then that just gave you something to work on. That's fair. We all could take that advice, couldn't we? <laughs> and it's embarrassing because then you'll look back and be like, did I really just go nowhere with my training over the course of six months? No, you still did work. You may not be accessing it all because you're missing some pieces, but it's there waiting for you as soon as you like shore up one of your edges. But it's it's an illuminating process to have to go back and defend what you've done without having to like, without letting yourself put spins on it. Like you have to just be black and white with this and say the truth and see how it hits. Well, I think when we've been doing this for decades, I mean, I'm not that old, I'm 38, but I've been doing this now for two and a half decades, we'll call it. Mm-hmm. You're at two, probably. Like, sure, we all do think we know it all, and we all think we know our bodies. Heck, it's why we started a podcast because we think we know enough <laughs> to talk about it. Do you know what yeah. I mean? So, so pot, meat, kettle. But um, it's like, don't be a know it all. Like, what people stop being is they stop being curious mm-hmm. as they get as they get further into their careers. They stop being curious. Well, I popped one good race. A week and a half after I did mile repeats with two minutes rest. And now for the next 15 years, if I got a race comes up that I care about, I'm going to do five by a mile with two minutes rest, 10 days out from my race. And that is going to be the ticket. And then they botch a race or two and can't figure it out why, but they just keep going back to the same thing and the same thing and the same thing. Our body responds to stimulus, but it does plateau. What our, what our body responds better to is, is change sometimes. 
especially if you realize you've looked back and you're like, yeah, my results haven't really gone anywhere in a while. Well, if you keep walking into a wall, take the door, right? And the door might be like, you know what? I'm only doing one quality workout a week. I'm going to go to two. Or my long runs have been 10 miles. I'm going to 15. Or I am going to hire a coach and relinquish control for one time in my life and just see what happens. Usually your box needs to be shook a little bit. And so um, I just think like getting out of your own way, meaning like, and sometimes it's too hard. You don't know any more than what you know. Like Bracken and I, we both started on our college principles we learned through our college coaches. And then we Mm -hmm. built our own philosophies from there. But like to say that I'm not stuck a little is a lie. And you're not stuck a little is a lie because we only know what we know. And sometimes just like getting rid of your ego and asking for help, especially in the later stages, I would say is as important or more important than those in the early stages, which sounds contradictory. But you're going to respond to freaking anything early on as long as you're smart. Later on, not the case. Then you need to start splitting hairs. And so um, I would, I don't know if that was a direct answer or an indirect answer, but. No, I appreciate that answer. I like it. Mm-hmm. Your, your point of doing something and having success off it and then sticking to that is is an interesting one where we always talk about you win or you learn. Yep. I love it. But it's also an inherently flawed argument or statement because it puts the onus of learning on defeat which defeat is the most powerful teacher ever, but winning often clouds the process. Mm -hmm. It's not win or learn. It's win and learn or lose and learn. Because sometimes you win and you think, all right, I did that. That was good. Let's move forward and do it again, but better. But that's not always the case. When you lose, you sift through with a fine tooth comb. When you win, you don't. When you win, you go back and you highlight. Boom, 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 did it. That is now something I know to be true. But sometimes you don't know exactly why you won. Mm -hmm. So sometimes we have to reevaluate why exactly we did well. It's easy to evaluate why you didn't do well because you feel it so viscerally in a race. Like, oh my goodness, that workout did not prepare me for this feeling. But when you feel good, you attribute it all to exactly what you did. So I'm glad you brought that up. That was a... That's a point that's worth me remembering. It's worth me remembering too. Our wins cloud the process sometimes. I had one good race when I first got into Spartan. I was just shooting from the hip here, doing old college workouts and throwing a couple burpees in once in a while. And and my first race, I did uh, 800 meters hard, 60 seconds easy, 400 meters hard, 90 seconds easy times four. It's three miles of quality work. I did that the Wednesday before a Sunday sprint in Chicago, my first race. And I felt great. I ran well. And I got stuck on that workout for like three years. Race week, <laughs> that's it. That's what I do. And you know what? I did have some good races, but I also had some bad races on it. I'd realized I had nothing to do with that workout. It had everything to do with the bulk of the work I'd done beforehand. But I fell, fell trapped. Oh, race week, eight to fours. Someone's going to do it. No. It didn't always do it, point being. And eventually I've moved on from that. And I have a few others in the arsenal now too. I mean, there's only so many you want to do the week of a race. But nonetheless, um, I certainly was stuck in that trap. Go back, look at my running log. It's embarrassing. Like you did eights and fours 12 times this year. Like That's embarrassing. And you probably had a reason you did eights and fours that day based off of what you had done building up to it. Totally. And in the future, it was just a standalone. Exactly. And I've I've done that. Yep. All right. What, uh, no, let's go this. Um, 
who have you learned from the most, like the people in your life from a running coaching general knowledge standpoint? Who would it be? In person, running knowledge. Oh, I haven't had a lot of great in-person success. I would say in person, I learned more about connecting with people. My first high school coach, first and second, Dale Lindenberg and John Wersbicki, were both not necessarily running minds, but they had a huge heart for people. And I've mentioned them on here before. John Wersbicki was my guidance counselor who also coached cross country. And Dale Lindenberg was the cross country assistant and the track head coach. And they both just loved kids and wanted to see you become successful and a good adult. And so they were just really good at making you feel good. And you'd finish a workout and they'd say, we had a guy do this workout in that time. And he went on to do this or your stride looks so strong on the last rep. And they didn't really know much about the technicalities of running. If we look back, I did 800s and mile repeats from week one, all the way to the last week of cross country. Mm-hmm. There was no progression. There was no variation. I just tried to run them hard every single time, but they made us believe in ourselves and they kept us happy and they kept us motivated and they knew when to play ultimate Frisbee or flag football instead of a run day. And they knew when to take us bowling or do a pizza run. Like there's no place for that in a training plan, but there's a place for that in a human training plan. And I learned a lot from them. I learned a lot with the first uh, teacher I worked with when I was student teacher. His name was Bill Rimey. And he had had uh, some heart bypass surgery. He'd had some heart attacks and he had a pacemaker in his chest and he was naturally a stressed person and he adopted the most Zen calm approach I'd ever seen. And we were working at Lakeland School, which is an all separated school. It's not an inclusive high school, which is a school where regular ed and special ed students are combined. This was, you had to have an IEP, which is an identified disability to get into the school. And he had these kids so malleable to use a term you already used today. He, the louder someone got, the calmer he got. And the more worked up they got, the more he just mellowed out his voice. And he was just a master of de-escalating everything and connecting with kids because they couldn't get a reaction out of him because he was going to die if he got stressed. He like he had had too many heart issues. The doctors told him, like, you cannot be stressed anymore. Mm. And eventually the kids would do anything for him because he just wouldn't give them a negative reaction. But he just kept loving them and kept he wouldn't try to build them up too much. He wouldn't try to bring them down. He would just meet them at their level every single day. And I learned a lot from him. In terms of actual coaching knowledge, I got almost everything out of a written word. And so the answer to that is three dozen people. Like I talk about Fitzgerald. He was instrumental in getting me broken out of my faster is better, always approach, harder is better. Uh, Renato Canova, I love the way his mind works. He's an Italian coach from 800 through marathon. Um, We talked about Alberto Salazar a lot. Like, I can't defend a lot of the things he's done, but I love the way he thinks about training. I like the way that Rubio and, oh, who else? Gags and Scott Simmons, um, Smith. There's just so many people out there that I, I like. I like the way triathlete 
think about training. Triathlon training's incredible to me because they do things your body shouldn't be able to do. And they do it week in and week out. I love um, Marius Bakken's training philosophy of threshold emphasis that they use over in the Nordic countries. I pull from everyone and I didn't do that initially. And that was always my big flaw. Um, those are good answers. The interesting thing about this is I'm going to I'm going to, I got two very clear answers. And one is exactly your first answer. My high school and my college coach, uh, Lyman Fisher and John Zupont. Lyman Fisher was not a mind, but he was a heck of a supporter. In fact, the guy was my math teacher and kicked me out of advanced math my freshman year of high school, uh, or in eighth grade, sorry. And then they show up and he's the high school coach. Had no idea. And he was like a dick. He's like, you're not supposed to be here. My mom didn't like him. We had a really rough start. Kicked me out of his advanced math class. I went back to regular math. I hated that man. Then he became my coach. And he did everything for me. Showed up at 5 a.m. for pool sessions when I was injured before he had to go for a long day of teaching. Then still came to practice afterwards. He just showed up for me. And he was supportive, just like you talked. Set a good stage, a good warm feeling around running. Yeah, people in running are good. They care about me. He was a very good man. And then my college coach, I called him my dad away from home. He'd bring you into his office and ask you about real stuff and invest in your life. Was he a good coach? Yeah, we were national champs when we were there in cross country and runners up in track. Um, however, he was that doesn't stand out to me for him at all. Stands out as just like the kind of dude he was, somebody you could talk to about anything. And I think it's funny that I learned the most about how to approach people and be a coach myself just through like how to approach people and be a coach myself. Yeah. Meaning like, and look at us, like we're in our thirties, late thirties, and we still have this vigor for what we're doing. It is so rare to be me and you in our, me in my late thirties, you in your mid thirties, still having a zest for something because nobody beat the shit out of us with it early. They did what was needed at the time. We could have got more intense training potentially. I, we for sure could have, but we didn't, but we're still here. And that's like super important. Mm -hmm. Like just having somebody who understands people makes you feel heard like for sure the most influential. And then, so I won't hone on that more because you said everything that needs to be said about that type of person. But like, those are the people you want. Who cares if they're not the best running mind? You just want somebody who like help, wants you to win. Pat, yeah, you got your back. Yep. I'm going to interrupt you, Kirk. I want to strengthen that point. And I'm okay. sorry to interrupt because you're on a good flow, but I truly am going to upset some people, but way too much emphasis is placed on the actual knowledge of running sometimes because they're connecting with people will get them will get you farther than connecting with science some athletes will respond to the scientific approach with just a droid giving it to you but most people need a person and i would rather have someone with a fair knowledge of the human body and an exceptional gift with people than exceptionally gifted at knowing how to run and no real ability to connect with people. 100%. So what makes me a good personal trainer. My knowledge is average, but my ability to connect and understand with people is better than average. And that's the only reason. That's what all these sort of professions where you deal with people, I feel like that should lead the way. Mm -hmm. I agree. And then I would say uh, my concrete answer is um, one nobody said yet, and that's my athletes. I've learned absolutely the most from my athletes and myself. Uh, maybe it's a default, but since starting this podcast, since transitioning mostly from personal training into mostly coaching, um, I have progressed in my knowledge and understanding of how bodies react to things 
based on feedback from them, no one mind has taught me more than all those other minds combined and bodies combined responding to things. I feel like the more, you know, people I've had come my way, the more I've learned and not always good. Like sometimes I throw something at the wall and it doesn't stick. And I've learned from failures too. Like it's not like every time I'm getting it right, but like learning for sure, I would say from them. Well, that makes me feel terrible that I didn't mention. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's true. If you think about it, maybe your mind just didn't open up that box, right? Like, oh, that's not what I was asking. No, you're you're right. It's just that none of us thought to give credit to all the people we trialed and erred on, but you did. (laughs) Why'd you roll your eyes just now? Because I didn't, I feel like, I feel like a bad person now. You can cut my part out if you want. I don't care. I'm going to leave it in because people need to understand that you're a good person. Uh, Despite what everyone says, you're like, I don't care what they say. <laughs> I had a high school coach. He used to walk into a room. He was an old school guy with like dad jokes before they were dad jokes. He'd walk in, he'd go, I don't care what anyone says. Kirk's all right. <laughs> <laughs> Actually? Yeah. Because that'd and be he, hilarious. He, he'd do that all the time. He'd walk in, you'd be like stretching before practice. He wasn't even coaching. He'd walk in and be like, hey, I don't care what anyone says. Bracken's all right. That's so funny. Uh, if you if you Google like Kirk DeWint, most hated man in America, you will get many search queries pop up for that during my bachelor days. So there's there's multiple you know opinions out there, but I can fake it for an hour and a half for our podcast, Bracken. Then. You're good at it. I, I must be. Yeah, when we talked earlier about do we not or do we give people the real thing? Like, I'm pretty genuine. Like, you're just a you're all a facade. Well, you're I, you, know, you, you know, no, you're a reality TV star, okay? With everything that goes along with that, and don't let anyone tell you any different. <laughs> <laughs> My real hope was to move to LA, get into the acting world, and I'm just you had to shoot a little porn along the way to make it by. You were willing to do that as long as they blurred my face out. It's fine. All right. Um, if you if you had to hire a coach for yourself, uh, let's take our circle out of the equation. By the way, let's not do that to each other. Okay. Like your your life depends on running the fastest 5K to half marathon uh, for sure of your career or just be the best OCR. I guess I don't really care. Whatever your heart leads you. Who would you hire and, and why? And I'm going to say the reason you're thinking of this, I don't have an answer to this. And it scares me that I don't. Like you're going to get to me and I'm going to be like, I don't know. And I feel weird that I like I should. So in terms of middle distance training, I really like the concepts of Joe Rubio. I do. But you know what? I... I feel that I am not, and and I'm going to sell professional coaches short, I'm sure, but I am not a professional runner. I do not have the talent or the resiliency to training or the body of a pro runner. And I just don't believe most of the people who I see get the best out of the top end athletes could do it as well with me because I don't bring to the table what they're used to working with. Maybe they could but I can't guarantee it. So I don't think I would choose the typical pro running coach. I don't have a great answer, but you know what I think I would do? I would join the American Distance Project based out of Colorado Springs. I think it started as the world-class athletic program. It's the program Scott Simmons coaches. He, he a lot of the, the Africans who have come over here and joined the army to get citizenship and are soldiers and race for the U.S. Their full-time occupation is basically racing, but they still have to do their soldierly duties. They trained out of the Cheyenne uh, Mountain High School track on their quality days. And so I got to see them from time to time. Mm. And he allowed triathlete coaches and triathletes out on the track with them. 
and they'd all meet up and do workouts. And Joe Gray, this one of the top mountain runners in the world, joins them for for speed workouts. And I think I would join them because he is a rare professional coach who a has world class Olympic medalists and world champions with him, and b allows the everyman to join in and train. So he clearly is not close-minded. He's not an elitist. And he has some sense of being able to see, here's what you're doing. Here's what your goals are. And here's how I would kind of like rope you in and fit my training schedule in with you. Mm -hmm. For Joe Gray to go run big mountain volume, run up and down Pike's Peak and join them for thousands and eights on Tuesdays, like it speaks to his knowledge and acceptance. So I think I would join that program because he would be more flexible with how many miles I have to run and how to take off days, but he has the elite knowledge of peaking an athlete. I think it's probably the thing I'm worst at would be to take someone and peak them for a track race, a true peak. If I'd never met them before and didn't have history, I would not feel confident peaking someone for one race of their life, but he can do something like that. But he seems to be a bit more open-minded. And I, anyone, anything that Joe Gray does, I think has to have some merit to it. So I think that's what I would choose, the yeah. American Distance Project. It's a good answer. I like that answer. I didn't know where I was going with this when you asked the question. Well, you, what came to you naturally is probably the right one. I, uh, I was struggling with this one. And then I thought, well, I don't really have firsthand knowledge of the, just like you don't for your answer. Mm-hmm. But then I thought about some of our guests and looking at recent jumps in fitness and all of them, not all of them, but I, I noticed a theme with uh, Megan and David Roche um, helping some people. And I thought, well, I'm not, I don't know what they're doing, but I'm curious. And so, mm-hmm. and even though, by the way, I know some of Megan and David's athletes listen to this. I emailed or I messaged both of them to be on our coaches series and both of them have ignored me. So if you're working with them, tell them to fricking answer me and get on this podcast. I'm sure you'd like to hear them, but they're mountain and trail runner coaches and not because of what they know, but what I see and how I feel our athletes talk about us, Bracken, is they're just like like them as like humans. Like, mm-hmm. oh, they seem to actually give a shit and they invest and that's why their athletes are successful. And so based on kind of the principles you just outlined, it's mostly a curiosity, but I would like to just scratch that itch and I just don't know enough. So I'd be like, well, let's just try this based on the fact that they're decent humans and some of their athletes have gotten good results. So they're decent humans who don't respond to an Instagram message. Much like you sometimes. <laughs> I'm starting to like them more and more. We could have the best <laughs> friendship, they, them and myself. We could really get along on training, really enjoy each other's theories, and never have to communicate via technology or devices. Listen, if I judge people by them ignoring me or getting back to me, uh, I would you know, say most people are assholes because most people ignore me. It's a terrible job trying to get people on a podcast, isn't it, Bracken? It's tough. It really is. And so what I appreciated about, about Matt Fitzgerald so much is he was just so responsive and so genuinely positive to get on. And, you know, I know he gets a lot of requests, so he, he leveled up in my eyes. Yeah, I had some communication with him afterwards. You did? Yeah. You guys having like a lunch date or something soon? He doesn't know about it, but I have a schedule. Okay, good. Seems He's going to wake up me. one morning tied to a chair in my in my breakfast nook and we're going to be eating. Hi. Hi. Hey, you made it. I mean, you woke up. Hi. Congrats. <laughs> I reminds me, what's that movie where that uh, that woman is- Saving Silverman? 
No, no. This woman is obsessed with the writer, and she basically ties. I think you mean the- Saving Silverman. Let's talk about that one. It was a good movie. Well, you know what movie I'm talking about? Yeah, Misery. Misery. Oh, that movie. No, I'm All not right. taking it that route. I don't want to do harm to the guy. Well, I know, but that's what the, you tied him to a chair, Bracken. That's messed up. In right. theory. All right, uh, a couple more here. Um, I'm gonna, I could ask the most important things to look for in a coach, but I feel like we just sort of dove down that, like with uh, our bad coaching episode. Well, that also. So I'm going to skip that, which leaves us actually with two left, which I know we're only an hour 22 in, but since the time crunch and getting pushed back, that's uh, where we're going to have to be at. So um, one thing I want to know, I don't know this about you, but like what would be some of the mistakes you made early on as a coach? Like if you went back and were like, yeah, young Bracken, you knob. What, what Do you have anything that comes to mind? I was way too confident early on that the things I had done in college were the best things to do and would work for everyone. I was operating under other people's training principles, training principles I couldn't fully explain the how or the why of, only the what. And I was just locked into a formula, like a template. This is what we have to do. We have to do Tuesday intervals. We have to do Thursday threshold run. And then Saturday, we're either doing longer intervals or a hill workout or a long run. And I was just too locked into that. And I, like early on, I, I talked about a little bit with, with Matt Fitzgerald, but I'm embarrassed of a lot of my early work. I just, I was too naive. And I, I was kind of speaking to myself in our bad coaching episode when we talked about sometimes people rush into monetizing early. Like I gave away plans early without monetizing, but I shouldn't have been given. I should have directed them to someone. I, I think too often... It's too easy to make money coaching, not good money, but you can make supplemental money too easily coaching because you put out a post and a thousand people see it and 10 people sign up and you have 10 people to screw up now, you know, and mm-hmm. I think I did too much of that early. So I was too re- reliant upon a template that wasn't based around my research. It was just based around what I had been shown, never explained to me. So Then I started doing research and I realized how much I didn't know. But every time I learned something, I was initially early in my career, I was too eager to be like, this is the thing. I kept, I kept wanting to figure out what my thing was. Like you had the Maffetone method and then you had the uh, Dillinger system at, is that who it was at Oregon? And then Mm -hmm. you had the, the nutty comb way at Wisconsin and you had like, everyone had their thing thing. This is how you do it. And I didn't want to copy them, but I wanted to basically like figure out what is the trail and OCR and road like thing? What is my, and I kept, I'd figure out something, a principle that I really liked, but I tried to make it my entire thing. Cause I was, I think I was afraid of the long road ahead. I was afraid that I could be 10 years ahead of this and still not have a thing. And that worried me. I wanted to figure it out. I wanted it to be groundbreaking. I wanted to write a book about it and I wanted to take over. And here I am 10 years later, so thankful that I didn't write a book because I don't need a thing. I need a good sound set of principles that I can apply to any situation in any volume level. And whether you have two legs or one leg or no legs, like I just want to be able to adapt to every person. And I would, and I was trying to ruin that early on by forcing things. I was way too dependent on speed work. I couldn't break away from my college mid-distance upbringing. 
I was mm-hmm. way too dependent on that. My periodization was garbage. I, I just, it took me, it was a long, painful route to get to where I am now. And where I am now, I am thankful that, because I wanted to be in 10 years, I am on my second version of my book and I'm like, my way is set. I'm so thankful that there is no way that's set. Mm. I watched a, a car documentary with Braden last night. He's very into it. It's, and it was called Apex, like the rise or the making of the hypercar. So focused on Pagani and Koenigsegg and McLaren. And the, the both Pagani and Koenigsegg were not car people. They were just self-made. They started a small company and now they make multi-million dollar hypercars. But say they were, they were all self-taught engineers and aerodynamic experts and carbon fiber experts along the way. But so it was really inspiring to watch that you can still in this day and age pull yourself up from nothing. But Koenigsegg had a quote, which was his his employees repeated. He said, as as he says, as uh, as I think his name is Christoph or Christian. As Christian says, perfection is a moving target. And it just hit me like, that's exactly it. You don't get there and you've made it and you've arrived and now you coast. It's like mm-hmm. every day you discover more of what you don't know. And so there isn't an end goal. You just want to be as good as possible on that date. And that was my biggest change, I mm-hmm. think, is I stopped trying to perfect one thing and tried to be, let's make this plan as good as we can make it for you today. And next month, we're going to try to refine it. And next year, I'm going to look back and realize I was kind of an idiot on 25% of this. And now let's make it like all we can do is the best that we can right now. And I always get wary when people say like, this is the only way to do it because that's based around what you know right now. And it might be based around about what you knew 10 years ago and stopped trying. Mm-hmm. Maybe uh, the title of your book could be Training the Light Side. <laughs> what do you think? I don't know what it would be. It would certainly not be I've arrived because mm-hmm. I'm still trying things out that I know full well may not pan out. And a lot of the yeah. trial and error is that things work, but they don't work indefinitely. They have to be put in in the right order at the right times and following the right, like a training block maybe only worked because of the preceding training block. And there's still yeah. a lot of that research to be done. So I think the biggest mistake I made was early on, I believed too strongly in what I knew. Well, you only know what you only know. And my uh, mistakes are the exact same. Um, You don't know what you don't know, and you only know what you do know. And so I only knew what I learned in college. And so um, I had very little periodization. My, you know, way of the taper would be throwing a little less, fewer, fewer reps of the same workout at somebody or, you know, which can be one way to do it. But like, um, so a little, very little periodization and then, um, way, way, way under on the tempo and threshold work. It was like intervals, intervals, or like steady, slow runs would be like a long run, just like go for a run, never playing with the true stay power work. You know, the longest thing I would prescribe would be two mile repeats. And you do that once early in the year. And then it would be like flashy, 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 and it would get people fit for a little while. But, um, I really undervalued the power of tempo and threshold runs. Like didn't even prescribe them for the most part early yeah. on. Like, cause I didn't know any better. And we did what in, in track, we'd do like one, four mile tempo to kick off the indoor season and then jump yeah. into thousands. Of, and like in cross country, we would do two or three by three K and then we'd suddenly be down to thousands. And so that's a five mile race. Well, five mile race is the equivalent or less of a sprint distance in Spartan. 
and then we're racing so much further now, like it, the principles are just different and we should have done more threshold work than looking back. And so just not putting enough emphasis on that. Oh my goodness. Could I have made people better? Um, but I had to learn that through my athletes and myself over time. And so that would be, that'd for sure be what leads the way for me. This worked for me. It'll work for you. Or this didn't work for me. So it's not true. It was a big, a big part of my life early in my coaching career. And really I was breaking the own rule, which is know why you give every workout. I was giving workouts because I had been given those workouts. Yep. I was giving progressions because that's what I thought the progression was that we had done. And I couldn't have stood up to my own test, which is explain to me why you did this, what you did before, what you intend to do after. I couldn't have given a good explanation and that should have been enough to me, but I wasn't thinking that way then. Mm -hmm. And also, I mean, gosh, do I not believe in hill work for any athlete, including a flat road runner? And I prescribed none of it early. Yeah. It was, there was no such thing as like, go chase vert or go, let's do 15% intervals on the treadmill. It was all flat work. Cause that's all I had known. And I, I shake my head at myself, um, from back then too, but, um, okay. Last question. And looking at the clock, let's keep it tight. Okay. Bracken. No promises. <laughs> all right. The big one. I feel like this is the one people have been waiting for. You get one workout. <laughs> one word i wish we hadn't written this question <laughs> the rest of your life we'll do three categories and let's try to make it somewhat quick just because of my i gotta get back to clients in the gym so one workout for ocr so race distance 5k to half marathon whether it's ocr trail or road we'll go three categories okay you get one workout for each of those three you have to repeat it the rest of your life on your quality days. You get no other options. You can do all the easy running you want, but anytime it's time to strap on those racing shoes or those, you know, flashy boots of yours, it's this quality workout. So let's start with road. Let's progress from road trail then to OCR. What is the one road workout, 5K to half marathon distance that you would prescribe? I think there's a lot of ways I could go with this, but I'm going to stick with the one that you will probably guess for me. I'm going to stick with thousands. Okay. Exact setup. <sighs> I'm going to do, oh, I want to cheat this already. I'm going to run them at about 15K pace. Slower than okay. 10K, faster than half marathon. And and I'm going to run anywhere from 6 to 15, depending on the athlete and, and the time of year and how fast you're actually pushing in between there. And I'm going to keep short rest. It's going to basically be a th high-end threshold interval workout. Okay. I think that's what I would keep to. It's not necessarily the best answer, but it's so repeatable. And with micro changes, speeding up two seconds or slowing down four, you can really change the scope of that workout more than you can many others. The reps are long enough that you build stay power and they're short enough that you don't destroy yourself and you can do it week in and week out all year. So I think I'm going to say, and let's, let's get away from that. That's a bad way. I'm going to say three to four minute intervals. Okay. Not thousands, because that can be a different thing for everyone. Three to four minutes at 15K plus or minus five seconds per mile pace. Short rest, 60 to 90 seconds. All right. I like it. I'm a, I'm a traditionalist here, and this workout always moves the needle for me. It's, it's mile repeats. I would take not a full three minutes rest, which is on the high end. I would go mile repeats, three to, let's say, eight reps, depending on what you're training for with a one quarter mile jog recovery. 
but keeping that jog recovery for me, let's say I was shooting for five 15s, I would keep my jog or off quarter between seven and seven thirty, So about two minutes per mile slower. So that would equate to, you know, let's say five 15 of work or five minutes of work and a minute 45 of active recovery. So heart rate's never probably getting down below 150 in that recovery jog. And by the time it barely does, you're going again. So I would say mile repeats, I guess you could call them five minute intervals. So basically taking your principle and adding a minute or two to it, it's the same thing really. So just extending it just a little longer. I'm doing three to four minute reps. You're doing five to six minute reps. Exactly. The same, same concept, short amount of rest for the work. Um, And then not letting that, like, I like the three minutes rest a lot because it lets you run a little faster. Mm -hmm. But in this case, I wouldn't put that in there because you can almost, you know, sort of cheat a little bit of threshold work in there because that heart rate stays in that zone for so long in your recovery jog and the first half of your repeat that it's, it's sneaky. So. I do want to adjust that because I adjusted the the thousand down to three to four minutes rather instead. And instead of 15 K pace, I'm going to say 30 to 45 minute race pace. So it's more inclusive because a 15 K could be an hour and a half for someone. And it could be like 35 minutes for someone. Well, I'm going to prescribe mine faster than the race pace you are. Yeah. I'm going to go a little slower so I can do it all year round. Okay. That being said, I really like Matt's idea. He did 30-15. I think 30-30 or 60-60 might be the one I'd keep because you can do that uphill, downhill, flat, whatever. That would be my second choice would be 30-30 or 60-60. And it would be a close battle. I'd be happy off either one of them if I could do all the other volume and long runs I wanted. Trail running, 5K half marathon distance. Let's include some vert. Like this is a a trail race. with. I already got it. I'm going to do shoots and ladders. Okay, explain it. And and that's either down, up, down, rest, up, down, up, rest, or just up, down, rest, up, down, rest, or down, up, rest, down, up. You have to go up and you have to come down or down, then up. It's You can change the workout a lot. You can do it at different intensities if you want. You can do it at 5% grade. You can do it at 45% grade. But the ability to run up and down when you're tired from the other ones is fantastic. And generally with this workout, you end up settling into right around threshold effort up or slightly above and then very fast running down. So you get all the speed work in you could ever need with fast turnover, almost like that over speed work down, especially if you did this like on Monday or like on Tuesday at like 5% grade or 10%. And then you did it on a Saturday as a longer effort at like 15 or 20%. I think you cover all your basics. That's the one I would stick to. I'd feel the most bang for my buck off shoots and ladders. Yeah. And I have a version. So you're going to notice a theme with me. Um, and some of my athletes will be like, oh yeah, I know that one. Uh, five, two hill loop intervals. It's, it's my little secret sauce, Not like a week out from a race or when I'm want to sharpen, but I also want some stay power, simple, almost the same principle as shoots and ladders, except it doesn't matter. It's indiscriminate to where you end up on the hill. It's like five minutes it's hard. Two minutes jog or walk recovery. Usually I do a walk recovery, even if it means you're halfway up the hill and you just, you just go, you pick a suitable, somewhat grade, somewhat hill that mimics race terrain and five minutes on two minutes off repeat four to six times. Very simple. Same. It's literally my mile repeats just echoed on a hill and converted to time. And sometimes you get up, down, up. Sometimes you get down, up, halfway down. Sometimes you get, but it's just, it's that time range I like to work in. I can run fast and hard enough, where but it's it's just long enough where it starts to really suck. 
mm-hmm. but it's short enough where you can still keep some power and speed. And so five, two heel loop intervals is the one I would go with, which is shoots and ladders just without like a start end point that is defined on yeah. the hill. I think I'd like to cheat for OCR and do one base for the mountains and one base for flat. Okay. So I would as long do... as we can wrap this up in in five minutes. Okay, go nuts. Be quick. If I'm training for a mountain based OCR, I'm just going to do Mount Majestic, which is our okay. workout where it's kind of like shoots and ladders with a carry in the middle. Run a hill once or twice, carry once. Run a hill once or twice, flat and fast on the flat, and then take your rest. And the way I traditionally do it is five minutes of hill reps, five minute carry, five minute hill reps, five minute like threshold on the flat, and then I recover and then do it again. You're like 20 minutes of hard, like tempo effort, threshold effort work. So you're taking a threshold or a tempo run and making it specific to the race with recoveries. Yeah. It's kind of like a three by 5k half marathon or marathon workout, but done up and down hills with flats every third rep. But there's carries in there. I think for the mountains, that's that's the one I would choose. And then for the row, I mean, for a flatter OCR, I'd be really torn between Hobie Tempo and OCR 400s. Hobie Tempo being anywhere from 800 meters to one mile at roughly race pace. Drop and do 12 walking lunges, 12 burpee broad jump, 12 walking lunges, right back into running. And you repeat that. It's basically like a threshold run, but broken up with walking lunges and burpees in between burpee broad jump. It just fires up your hips, your quads, your chest, your arms, and you get right back into running race-ish pace. Otherwise, OCR 400s, 400 meter run, 10 to 15 reps, repeat that three to four times. You call them OCR miles because it adds up to a mile. Mm -hmm. Either way, one of those two, I think I'd be a happy man with. Well, you have to answer. You have to pick one, Greg, and that's not what this question is about. If I can only pick one, you know what? I'm still, I'm just going to take the Hobie tempo. Okay. I like it. Um, for me, I guess I'll start flat and fast. Um, so I am actually debating between OCR thousands and OCR miles. Um, the thousands really move the needle for me and it adds up to like still, I like this five minutes of work thing. Okay. Like for some reason it comes back to that. Yeah. I just like that range because I can keep fast enough, yet it's long enough where I start to get that heart rate gets up and has to stay there. And so OCR thousands is literally strength exercise, 200 meters times five, right? Strength move, 200 meters, strength move, 200 meters. It overstimulates the broken running without too much running in between, which I can often, my heart rate gets jacked in transitions. And so um, I go, I go back and forth between that one, which is, you know, 45 seconds of running in between strength exercises. And then the OCR mile repeats, which is roughly 75 to 90 seconds of running in between. So it just like doubles the, the running, um, either one. I, if I, if a gun's in my head, I would pick the OCR miles maybe, um, which is strength, quarter mile, strength, quarter mile, strength, quarter mile, uh, setup. So one of the traditionals, I mean, OCR mile repeats can take you, takes me when I'm real fit, six and a half to seven minutes a rep and OCR thousands, because the strength that you're doing more of the strength work. I think those are roughly getting me in the five and a half minute range. So like, you know where my wheelhouse is. Mm-hmm. And then the other one, this is the one I would pick for mountains. If you want to talk about it is uh plate drag. It could be like a version of KDE because it covers mm-hmm. the grip. It covers kind of the carry load, even though you're not technically carrying. So it would be a two minute plate drag 
into like a hill loop interval. So it'd be like two minute plate drag, which is like a, I tie a 45 pound plate between a battle rope and it creates a lot of friction on the grass. So your grip is kind of fried by two minutes because you're ho holding the battle rope behind you. And then I do a hard up, hard down uh, loop on like the ski hill, uh, five minutes there as well. So it'd be two minute drag into five minutes hard up and down my hill loop. Um, that would be my two. So I wouldn't carry anything actually. If I had to pick, I would pick that one. Okay. KDE was my next workout up. Yeah. I learned that one from you. I think our theme is, our theme is that if you're running intervals, that three to five minute length is like the Goldilocks zone. It's golden hour right in there. Yeah. And then you can play with how much you rest in between to turn it into whatever you want, really. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. I look at, I checked all of them off. See, they're all checked off. We did it. Now you know everything you could ever know about what we believe about coaching and training. Yeah. Go out and sell your own plans with our info. You're, you're set. You can be a billionaire by the end of the week. Well, if that's the case, please tell us how. <laughs> I'd like to talk to you about an exciting personal business opportunity. It's not by selling t-shirts. Selling knives, Kirk, door to door. Oh, I was hoping for vacuums, but I'll take knives. Anything you want to add to this? <laughs> I don't think so. I like this so far. This was this is a good amount. I like getting to chat about all these things. Too bad we couldn't save this for the grand finale of coaching episodes, but technology had other plans for us today. Say la vie, Kirk. Say la vie. There's a coach. We got a high school coach, very accomplished high school coach, which we wanted to get their angle. Um, he's actually written a book as well called Racing Great When It Counts. He's up next for next week, so we'll be back to it, barring no technical difficulties. It's a crazy world. You never know what's going to happen. Mm -hmm.